It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. We are very pleased to have joining us today Chris Hedges. He's an author, commentator, and Presbyterian minister. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning former war correspondent for the New York Times. Uh, his latest book, The Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. Uh, so pleased to have uh, Chris join us today. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Uh, so you are a, uh, a Harvard-trained Presbyterian minister. Uh, as we mentioned, a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, war correspondent for the New York Times. How did you end up working with people in maximum security prison? Well, it was there was a lot of continuity, actually. It doesn't look that way from the outside. But when I was in divinity school, I lived in Roxbury, which is a depressed urban neighborhood in Boston, and ran a small church. So I commuted into Harvard uh, and uh, became kind of disenchanted with the liberal church that I came out of, that had left the city with white flight and disenchanted a bit with places like Harvard. Um you know, people who talked about empowering people they never met and uh, and had always written, uh, ended up going as a freelance reporter uh, and then eventually working for The New York Times, but always in very troubled areas, usually war zones. So right. Gaza, Sarajevo. And when I came back to the States, I think I very naturally gravitated uh, to the prisons, it, w- it was m- one of my uh, neighbors is the head of the history department of the College of New Jersey, and she was at that time there was no accredited program in the New Jersey prison system, and we would just buy the books and go in and teach a semester-long college course. Uh, and if they finished it, we'd print out uh, certificates that didn't, again, have any academic validity that would go in their folders. Uh, and this was just to supplement uh, the because they have GED programs. So I, I think that they're, you know, I've always kind of, both as a reporter and then when I was a divinity student, uh, gravitated to uh, those people who are most marginalized, those the theologian James Cone called the crucified of the earth. Yeah, and one of the things I love about your approach to all of this is that you're you're not looking at those whether they're in a, the criminal justice system or they're just on the the fringes. They're they're not liabilities to be managed. Uh, you see them as uh, people with infinite potential and worth and value that can be cultivated. Yeah, I don't want to romanticize prison. I mean, I have no, taught no. <laughs> people in prison you don't want walking the streets. <laughs> right. um, but I think prison replicates the outside culture. I mean, there's yeah. a small tier of people you kind of want to stay away from. Um, there's a lot of people who are kind of brain dead watching ESPN or whatever it is all day long. Mm-hmm. But the students that I teach are really exceptional. They are uh, real intellectuals. They never had the kind of schooling or the opportunities that I had. Um, but they they love books. 
their cells have been turned into libraries. Remember, when you're making $28 a month, which is a prison salary, mm. uh, buying a book is a tremendous expense. Yeah. Uh, and in that classroom, it was just sacred space. They, uh, they were so hungry, they worked so hard, and they were so gifted. And that was, I think, part of the tragedy of it. So I worked with this uh, kind of elite tier. It's very hard to get into the college program. Uh, I was teaching at one maximum security prison. We had 140 students in the program. We had hundreds, I think it was 800, but hundreds who wanted to get in. So, um, but they really are exceptional students. And I think any, anybody who teaches in a prison will, will echo that. Yeah. And I, I love that use of sacred space, uh, because anywhere, that kind of learning is happening is is sacred space in in my view and and you took that and uh, took it one step further in terms of actually uh, writing an, an odd off Broadway play with these people in maximum security prison. Right. I mean, I stumbled into it. It was accidental. I was teaching drama. It was clear that my students had very little familiarity with drama. They couldn't obviously afford $100, $100, or $50 tickets to go to Broadway and see something. And so on a whim, I said, well, just write, I want you to write dramatic scenes in dramatic dialogue so that you become familiar with how drama communicates because almost everything is communicated through dialogue or through whatever the actor uh, brings to uh, the uh, character. So I had attracted the best writers in the prison, which I didn't know at the time. And I read through, and some of these people were published and had read through their scenes. And there was probably about a half dozen of them. I had 28 students that were just remarkable. My wife who's a graduate of Juilliard and a professional actor, I showed them to her and said, you know, I think I'm going to help them write a play. But so it was, that was the first accident. Uh, I wasn't planned. But the second thing that was even more remarkable is that once they began to write, of course, all these scenes were autobiographical. So they were coping with loss and grief and violence. I mean, everything, it, it, it ripped down those protective walls that people build within a prison to protect themselves uh, and just became this transformative experience because in a prison you don't often you don't even use your legal name you you can be in a cell with someone they can uh, know very little about you people are very guarded any kind of vulnerability uh, brings out the predators um, so this class, I mean, people were writing, you know, stuff that was so emotional they couldn't read it or their hands were shaking or, I mean, just one small example, uh, I, we were trying to build a scene around a mother. I mean, my job became kind of melding the scenes together. I mean, everything had to be approved by the class. So I was the editor. Uh, so we were working on, uh, because the first half of the play, it's called Caged, uh, is about life before prison. And uh, I said, well, write a scene with your mother. One of the students said, well, what if we're a product of rape? And I said, well, that's what you have to write. So, And it's autobiographical. He writes this phone call from the county jail after he's been arrested uh, to his mother. And, and uh, he's, he's, he had been in a car in Patterson, New Jersey with his half-brother. There'd been a weapon in the car. Uh, if nobody claims the weapon, everyone in the car will get charged with weapons possession. Mm. And uh, he claims it, even though it's not his. And he says to his mother, well, it doesn't matter, Ma. I was never supposed to be here anyway. And you have the son you love. Wow. Uh, 
So it's just it, it, and I think the other thing, and we put the play was put on in Trenton, New Jersey, which is a depressed city in New Jersey. It was full every night, sold out every night, because of course many people in Trenton have suffered from mass incarceration. Mm. And uh, the director, after he read the play and started, he said, you know, this is really a play about radical love. And I think that's right, because it's about sacrifice, even when you know you're going to be destroyed, or even when you have two life bids and you know you're never going to get out. Um, you're going to make sure that you know, young kid with a with a short sentence does get out. I mean, it's that kind of stuff. It's uh, so it, yeah, it was an incredibly powerful experience. But I'd, I'd love to say that I I was the architect of it and planned it, but I was completely uh, serendipity. <laughs> Uh, well, we know ser serendipity doesn't happen by chance in those kind of situations. <laughs> you have to have someone who is is willing and worthy to accept a, a tap on the shoulder, uh, as Winston Churchill always said. And uh, those those do create finest hours. Uh, and this is is clearly one of those. Uh, just a, we've got about just a minute left. Um, what is it? What surprised you in in all of this process? You you, you spoke about the idea of integrity uh, in your book uh, and what you learned about integrity from these people who are in the prison system. Yeah, it's not what you do in life; it's what you do with what life gives you. So I had I would say in that class, all of my students had determined and understood that life hadn't given them very much, but they were going to be the best person they could be. And I think that's embodied in one of the stories in the book about a 14-year-old uh, whose parents are dead. He's living in an abandoned house in Camden, New Jersey, per capita, poorest city in the country. He's grabbed by the cops, forced to sign a confession for a rape and a murder he didn't commit. He was illiterate. He couldn't read it. He gets to court. He tries to protest that he didn't carry out this crime. That, um, And he's sentenced as an adult, and he's not eligible to go before a parole board even to ask to get out until he's 70 years old. And uh, I had him in a later class. He was a very, he's a very good student, went on and graduated summa cum laude from Rutgers. We actually got him out. That's another story. But uh, he said, you know, I'm, I know I'm going to die in this prison, but I work as hard as I do because one day I'm going to be a teacher like you. Mm. Uh, and that those, you know, watching these people, I, I don't think very few of us could, endure what they have endured and become who these people have become yeah uh chris said just we need to have you back for a, a longer version of this conversation uh, but the uh, the book is the class trauma and transformation in an american prison uh chris i so appreciate your work and uh, your insight we all have a, a lot to learn and uh, i think while you were teaching you were also uh, an amazing student in terms of how you've documented uh, these extraordinary lessons uh, from our fellow travelers uh, who have had a, a very different path uh, on this uh, journey we call planet Earth. Uh, but so appreciate your perspective and I uh, look forward to having you back on the program to continue. This is one of those we have to stay with the conversation a little longer and uh, we look forward to having you back. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. We'll step aside for a quick commercial break. When we come back, it's World Down Syndrome Day. We have some very special friends and uh, you don't want to miss it. Stay with us on KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? 
I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.